Hello, hello. Thanks for checking out the podcast. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. My name's Jason Bay, but you can call me Jay Bay. I'm Chief Prospecting Officer at Blissful Prospecting. And this podcast is for sales reps and sales leaders who want to land more meetings with their ideal clients through their cold emails, cold calls, LinkedIn, snail mail, carrier pigeons, <laughs> whatever it is that you're doing to prospect. I'm super excited uh, for the episode today. This is part of our leaders series, and today we're talking to Christine Rogers over at Aspireship. So one thing that we haven't talked about this podcast on this podcast much is, you know, hiring, onboarding and growing a sales team. And the reason why I want to talk to Christine Rogers is because she's done all of those things (laughs) and is helping companies do those things. And in my journey, in our coaching practice and the training that we do, we're starting to work with larger teams and sales leaders and that sort of stuff. And they want to know this kind of stuff. And I'm not an expert on hiring and onboarding and like growing the team. I focus specifically on the prospecting and what Christine's going to talk about is, you know, she's had experience at really quickly growing SaaS companies. And one of the things that she shares is really like how they approached their hiring process. So there's some really unconventional things that she talks about in terms of like hiring and what they've looked for. She talks about onboarding. There's a really good best practice that they talked about in terms of like allowing your reps to really experience what it's like to not only use the product, but what it's like to be the customer that uses the product and just some tips on how to grow and create a really good culture. So this one's going to be full of goodies. Uh, before we get to the episode, make sure to check out blissfulprospecting.com slash Jason. If you're looking for some bite-sized, you know, 10 to 15 minute nuggets. So those are short podcasts, LinkedIn posts, videos, etc. And it could either be for you to share with your team or for you to use yourself if you're a rep but it's my best stuff that you can consume in 10 to 15 minutes a piece on how to send better cold emails, cold calls, all of that stuff. So make sure to check that out, blissfulprospecting.com slash podcast. And let's get to the interview today. So I always like to ask a, uh, an icebreaker to get started. What was your favorite childhood breakfast? Oh, <laughs> I love toast. With peanut butter and banana, that was like one of my very favorites as a kid. And I, I probably would say that was also a favorite lunch. I don't know. I was just <laughs> like a weird kid uh, who loves peanut butter and banana. That's uh, like you add bacon to that and you have like Elvis's uh, favorite sandwich, whatever that was called. <laughs> oh, I don't actually eat bacon. Yeah, we stopped eating bacon, actually. My wife is a huge fan of it. And I'm just like, I feel like my heart goes into like overdrive mode when I eat a pork. It's a little worrisome. Oh, for, oh, it's too rich for me. That's what, that's all. It's just too rich. Yeah. I just, yeah, I know everybody loves bacon and I'm like, mm, okay, well, I'm happy you love it. It just makes me feel terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now we got that out of the way. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> so I was looking at your LinkedIn and uh, just, you know, kind of just doing some research. We've talked a couple of times, of course, but I'm really curious, like what, got you interested in getting into like, not only sales, but like tech sales. Cause I feel like tech sales is like almost like its own, like kind of brand. Was there a transitionary period? Cause it looks like you did quite a few things before that. Was there something that you remember that kind of got you into tech and like sales and like that sort of thing? Actually, it wasn't the concept of tech 
sale that got me in because I had been an entrepreneur and owned my own business and really we all my store failed. So we had to close it. And so I had this really strong sense of entrepreneurship and small business ownership. And so actually a friend that worked at Infusionsoft who really at that time, it, it's now called Keep, but at that point, their entire mission was around really enabling and helping small businesses succeed. So I actually talked with them more from a, I've been there before and um, I can probably, you know, be helpful in this situation. And actually it was funny. I just remembered this the other day when I went and interviewed, I actually talked to the CMO at the time and he's for a marketing role. And then he said, as we were talking, he said, I think you're more of a salesperson. I'm like, you know what? I really am. I've always been in sales. I don't know why we're, you know, because I had done marketing as well for my business. And it was just kind of funny how it naturally, there wasn't like a moment where I was like, I want to do tech sales. I want to go sell SaaS software. That wasn't my moment. It was like, I want to help small business owners not go through the pain that I did. So I went and did that. And then that's where kind of this whole thing began for me. What's interesting about your journey there going from like running your business into like wanting to go into marketing and then sales, because I've been kind of doing my own thing for about, well, like eight or nine years now. And what I noticed is that when you have to do that, you get all of these like random kind of skills that like are really helpful, like how to put up like a web page, even if it's on like Squarespace or something really simple. Was there any like little like kind of skills like that that you're like, oh, wow, like this thing that I didn't even know about, like really helped me like as a sales professional? Yeah. You know, so one of the things is actually in my furniture store. So it was a baby furniture store. That is actually where I figured out sales process. I actually didn't really like know all the terminology and everything, you know, everything. But here's what I knew. First time mom comes in, she's by herself. She just found out probably that day that she's pregnant. So I would be the first person sometimes that she told, haven't told my husband yet. The next time that she would come in, she would bring a friend that had already had kids. And so I knew that was like step two, friend kind of validating this is the, the good thing. And then the third step was either the partner or the woman's mother. And if the woman's mother came, I knew grandma's buying either a rocking chair or a crib today. Grandma's buying something today because grandma's here for a reason. And then that fourth time was usually the spouse or, you know, whatever. And that is a very different conversation when I'm talking to, you know, a father to be who is, you know, trying to scratch the paint, worried that the kid's going to eat it, wanting to make sure the wood's sturdy. Whereas, you know, we've been talking aesthetic for the most part with the mom and, and I'm generalizing, but that helped me understand bump, 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 bump. This is the way that it moves. This is how the process goes. And I could start counting on things, especially when I was very relational. If I could remember her name, I knew I was 50% of the way there on the second time she came in. So I did actually learn sales process through that whole experience. And that's interesting too, because it started in like B2C, right? Which I started in B2C too. My first sales job was going door to door selling house painting (laughs) services. (laughs) Yeah, I love which, that. Uh, which was brutal in some ways, but it also, and I'm curious to know from you, I found that one, I think selling B2C, especially like the prospecting part of it can be way harder than B2B because you can't really research people. Like you're kind of going in like pretty cold if you have to do it kind of cold outreach style. But the other part too is that I find, 
I'm not going to say sales is sales, but I find they're way more similar selling B2C and B2B than they are different. And I feel like people try to make it out like one is very different from the other. Like, what's your take? I agree with you. I think they are very similar. I think that one of the things that is very present for me is that people do want to be important and matter in the conversation no matter what. So on any side of the table, you know, whether you're a first time mom who is has a billion questions about what they actually need or your um, CTO at an organization that's trying to figure out what's the best software solution in a very large enterprise sale, you're still trying to make sure you understand who they are, what they need, what are their concerns. You know, there's still like basic discovery questions. That's the same thing I would ask a mom. What, what brought you in here? How did you know about it? what what worked? How, because I was doing at that point, imagine we were doing like mailers with different things because this was a store. So it's very different. And yet so very similar. I mean, it's I think you're right. They're more the same than different. Yeah, that's interesting because I noticed something very similar when I was because one thing that we would do selling house painting services and I worked for a company called CollegeWorks Painting. I actually had a really good sales training. Like it was very process driven. The only thing I didn't like, it was a little bit like they used like the 10% off coupon if you buy the day of kind of thing, which I don't really like that kind of thing too much. But it, I mean, it worked. But one of the things that we would ask is, have you ever hired a house painter before? And most people had, at least that I was selling to, most of them had not done that before during the time that they owned the home. So part of that was just like educating them on like what to look for which I do the same exact thing when I work with companies now, a lot of them have don't have a lot of experience hiring a trainer or a coach to come in to help with prospecting. So I find myself having, it's the same kind of conversation. And you mentioned that, oh yeah, she'll come back and bring her friend. It's the same thing here too. People typically talk to me and it's like someone just kind of doing a little bit of research to bring back to their team and then they come back and it's really weird how similar <laughs> the process can be. It is. And you're all, and you're always trying to figure out, you know, what's important to you, you know, what matters to you? Because even in like something like furniture, it's like, well, do you want this furniture to last their whole life? Because all types of cribs and there's all types of furniture. And are you just, or do you want this to be, you know, just for now? Or is this, you know, there's a lot, so much of it is, is so similar. Yeah. So we have kind of like an interesting kind of theme this like a uh, thing of like feeling important and that like what you say like matters and all of this other stuff if we kind of transition into I mean you have so much experience like going through these like hiring processes I mean you of course specialize with that now but like the onboarding like the growing the team part of it how do you see this fitting in like if we kind of focus on this first piece of like hiring is that something that like you look for in the hiring process like people that you feel really care about like their prospects and their clients? Is that something that you look for at all? And and if so, or if not, like what, what are some of the things you're really focused on and like what, what the other person, like some of the more intangible things that aren't like, oh, do they know how to send cold emails and get meetings or not? Like st the stuff that's a little more intangible. Yeah. So a couple of things that I think are really important for me, I always looked at, I look for people who are learners. So what, what have they learned recently? You know, like what's something that, they've acquired in the last couple of years or had curiosity about. I'm always interested in that. And when we hire people for our own company here, continuous learning is what we do 
continuous learning is who we are. So that is one of our main questions is to say, what's something you've recently learned? And I've had the most interesting conversations around, I just actually learned how to cook virtually, you know, because I didn't know how to do that. And I thought, well, if I'm staying at home, I'm going to work, you know, and learning something and also making sure that that's a real answer because that's showing like what made you curious about that you know so there's some natural curiosity the ability to learn because i actually think as long as they have that capability to learn something quickly there's not much that we can't teach them in onboarding you know in the way that we're managing the team or with the coaching and different things that we're doing so that's a really big one for me how they communicate is very important as well through our coursework, we get to see how people, you know, interact with the software and do role plays and different things. So they're practicing these hard skills. But I'll tell you, one of the most important things is when we say something to them, like, I need you to send me these three bullet points, their pace is showing me like how they communicate. Okay, here's this. How do they write? What are they talking about? And also how quickly do they respond? If I am going to put somebody in a highly transactional environment and it takes them three days to email me back three bullet points, I've now got concerns that that's not the right fit for them. They might need a slower motion. People should really think about this from both the the manager, the hiring manager perspective, and I think the candidate perspective, it's important to talk about this as well, is every step of it should be telling some story about who you are. And as the hiring manager, you should pay attention to the nuances there. If you say, this is it, and you want them to have a deadline or be mindful of deadlines, and the environment is highly changeable or could have a little bit of time pressure, it's not bad to create some of that in the process so that the candidate can feel what it's going to feel like, can feel your energy, as the hiring manager can understand, like, because we want them to self-select out if it's not for them. That's the best thing. If you can create an environment where people are going through it and saying like, you know what? I don't think this is for me. Then you have saved yourself a lot of time on both sides. We want it to be a very, very positive experience. But people that self-select out feel pretty good about the fact that they know that that wasn't for them. So I think it's our responsibility as hiring leaders to make sure that we're doing the best job emulating the role through the process. So they get to not only just know what they have to do, you know, my job is this many dials and this many this and having this many conversations and closing this many deals, but also here is an example of the type of environment that we have. And this is how we all kind of do this dance together called work. And I think that is probably one of my most um like helpful tips is to think about that differently from the hiring perspective. Yeah. So it almost sounds like you're thinking about what is it like being a sales rep at our company and how do I simulate different aspects of this through the hiring process? And it sounds like you're looking really close, like how do they respond to this? So like if you have to nudge them to follow up or you have to be the first one to follow up with them, that's I mean, it's probably not going to be a good salesperson in general. <laughs> so you're looking for all of those things. Is there anything else that you feel that a lot of companies, especially the companies you engage with, like before you start working together, do you, is there anything else that you see that they like are really missing the boat on that might be like common, like good advice, like to do this thing, but it's really maybe kind of bad advice. Is there anything that you see like that going on right now? You know, 
we have a pretty, I mean, we are really fortunate that we work with some incredible partners. And I believe it's really important for us because if you can imagine, Jason, we have candidates and we have hiring partners and both of those are important. So if our hiring partner is delivering an experience to our candidates, that is anything other than really well done and, and excellent, then we risk having candidates say like, oh, they had terrible companies that they introduced me. And that really impacts our top of funnel on the candidates coming through. So for us, we've been really fortunate. We've said no to some partners that were not in alignment with kind of how we think. I've had where I'm hearing language that is from the director or from the manager that is what I would call diminishing language. And in our conversations, the way they're talking about their teams or different things like that shows me that it it wouldn't probably feel good to be there. And so, you know, when we, when I tend to kind of push on that a little bit and ask questions, and here's the words that I'm hearing from you all. You're saying you have a very, you embrace feedback and different things like that. But here's what like you just said, which feels like that may be a little bit in conflict there. And usually they're pretty spicy with that response back, which shows me they're not open to feedback, you know? And then it's like, yeah, you know what? I just don't know if that's quite going to work. So I always look for, you know, what we're saying is matching, you know, from the candidate perspective, what we're saying is matching who we're being. And if that's not the case, we need to take a look at it. From a leadership perspective, we need to look at it. And, um, you know, we've had some hard conversations over the last few months where if there is, there are some things that are not in alignment there, then we can't do that. So is is the uh, language like a symptom of the culture? Well, if you're the leader of the organization and we use language like, well, good luck getting promoted here. It took me this long or different things like that, which actually happened in conversation that does not feel good. And also, is that real? Like if that's really the sentiment and you're the frontline manager, how does that translate in any way, shape or form to a good type of conversation? Like where was that intended to go? that be good? How do you want someone to be enthusiastic about opportunity where there there is none based on what the words you just said? This is a really interesting topic to me because God, I can't remember. I think I wrote a post about this a couple weeks ago or recorded a video or something. And it was on this kind of like, <laughs> not to shit on my dad, but my, my dad, will, will, he's the type of guy, my wife and I talk about this all the time. He's the type of guy that will say he's very open to feedback, but when you give him feedback, it triggers him. Right. And in a way that kind of reminds me of like what you said just now, where it's like where a company sort of outwardly talks about, Hey, it's like a really open culture with a sales team and you're going to get to test your own ideas and do all this other stuff. But then in a team meeting, I, and I see this sometimes with companies we work with where I have to point it out to the managers. I'm like, Hey, this person raised their hand and, and they weren't complaining. They're just saying, Hey, the sequence that you wrote for me is not really working that well. And I don't really know what to do. And it's like immediately shut down oh, you're being negative, Christine. Like, we can't have that negativity. Do you see this in organizations? And like, is that fixable? Like, when you come in and work with them? Or is that more like a deal breaker for you? Where like, ah, we, we can't deal with you guys or work with you guys. Nobody's perfect, right? So, so including leaders, like they're going to have bad moments. I just, I'll just tell you what I just told my team. I said, I just now remembered one of my worst moments. And it was in an interview <laughs> I just told them this story. So it's very top of mind for me. I said, I behaved so badly 
as the leader of this group. And what happened was this individual came in and was entering, it was a final interview when I was with two other managers and the director of sales. And I was the VP of sales at the time. And I had gotten a reference from someone I knew at the previous company. And it was like, no, we would not hire this person back. And so I was irritated that we were even in final stage. I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, and so I just waited for the, for the moment to pounce really on this person. Like, I know, I know I was like primed to say no, you know, primed. And I think that that's definitely something we should talk about is when you're primed to say no in a hiring motion, like it's very difficult. It's, it creates a difficult environment for everyone. But we walked this individual out. So thanks for your time. We did the whole interview. The manager that walked her out came in and they all sat there and uh, it caught kind of quiet for a minute. And they said, wow, you, you, and this is like the feedback piece, right? We had been together for a while. So we had some good open dialogue. They said, I've never, literally the director, he looked at me and goes, I've never seen you do that before. And you were primed to say no. And you've made that experience uncomfortable for everybody in the room. And the other two were like, I think you owe an apology. That's how straight they were with me. Like, regardless of whether we make this decision on this individual or not, you should send an, an email because your behavior was poor. And I was so appreciative because that is like you. And I did. I did because I'm like, you're right. In those moments, like we're not all going to behave perfectly. We're going to have bad situations, irritations, especially when you're in hiring and you all of a sudden have to run in and do like, hey, I'm so excited to do this interview with you. And you just had like three really, really difficult calls or something else that's going on. It is hard to do that all the time. So I'm not, but it's also part of the responsibility. And when we mess it up, even though we didn't offer mission, this was still a human that I was not my best with. And thankfully, I had three other people around me that knew me well enough. And also that we created enough trust between us for them to say to their VP of sales, that was not you. And you will think about this later and regret this. So this is our suggestion for how you handle it. And it was spot on. I love that. Good for you for being able to take the feedback too. Because that's like, especially when you're in like, an emotional state where you have like a lot of energy or you're really frustrated with something, you know, or you already have like your mind made up. That's like the hardest moments, you know, to like be open, like to the feedback. Is there any advice you would have for, you know, anyone that's in the sales leadership position that's like trying to create more of that type of culture, like at their company, like what's something maybe practical a sales leader could do to really foster like a culture like that within their team or company? Well, I think it starts small. So we start with low risk, <laughs> low risk activity, right? So that was a pretty high risk activity. Like that feedback only came from having trust between us enough. They trusted me. They knew I was open to it. One of the exercises that um, I've done with quite a few of my leadership teams, and again, this takes time. You can't do this right out the gate is, you know, we all went and said, okay, I want you to look at everybody around this table. We're going to give one area of opportunity for each person. And then one thing that is like highly appreciated. And we are going to go, all right, John's on the hot seat. Christine, what do you have for John? And then rolling through and trusting everybody. And we talk, you know, again, that's a high risk activity, 
But we, after that meeting, everything changed because we all leaned in and said like, and we did some work beforehand to set the room and say like, this is today, I'm going to ask you to be uncomfortable and we're going to do this. And um, by the way, only woman was the, I'm the leader, all men. And they leaned in. They were, I'm like, I need you to not think of this as fluff. I need you to understand that this is going to transform our relationship and that if you phone it in, it's going to be shit. So like either leave this meeting now or buckle up because we're going to do some shit that's a little bit uncomfortable. And I will tell you what was so awesome about that is I'm like, we're going to go with me first. And they immediately all got really uncomfortable. Like, oh, great. We start with you. And I'm like, yeah, we're going with yeah. me. We're going to be, and I don't want to see anybody change in their answers. Stick with what you have, because like, this is the point. We all gave it some time. We thought about it. We did it. And you know what? There were themes. What showed up was themes for every person. And that was so powerful. And then we figured out, all right, I'll tell you what they told me. If every one of them in one way, shape or form said, Christine, when you get stressed out, you actually start gripping and get tighter with us. And so when things get more pressure from the top, we might not even know what's happening, but you're like, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? And like start to, and they're like, call, one of them called it white knuckling. The other one said, you get grippy. You get grippy. We know when you're getting grippy. So then we said, I said, all right, I am asking you to tell me when I'm doing it. You have my permission to say, hey, just a heads up, a little, little, little grippy, you know, and do it. Not exactly what I'm doing, Gerby. I explained when I would appreciate that feedback. Like maybe walk away with me after I do that and be like, hey, just a quick thing. And you know what they did. And so we all created space to say like, all right. And when this is showing up, here's the, so I said, here's what I'm working on. Here's what I'm going to work on based on the information that you gave me. And here's the way that it would help me if you gave me that feedback. And some people were like, I do not want this feedback publicly. Other people were like, it would really help me if like, even just shoot me a quick text to be like, this is. I noticed this, you told me to, you know, everybody wanted it a little differently, but like you have to create environments where you have these hard conversations and you start small, build, you know, building trust together, but then you get to where they're kind of high risk and you know what? Good teams can handle it. Oh, I love this. This should be like homework for every sales team. I mean, cause like I could see getting a couple things from this almost like group therapy, like a couple things from it. Like once you hear people in a controlled environment like that, give you feedback, it kind of gives context to every interaction with that person moving forward. Where like, if I get feedback through Slack and it feels really impersonal, I know that Christine means well, because we've had this interaction before. And like, she actually really cares about like me as like a person. And then I'm successful. And it gives like that context that's I think missing sometimes in that Slack message or that like really cold, like response back to an email asking for feedbacks where it's like, Hey, I didn't think this was good. And I'm actually working with uh, someone right now, a sales manager. I'm just doing one-on-one -on -one coaching with, but that was the feedback I was giving. I was like the feedback, it's very cold and I can hear and see how the other person's taking it. And they're taking it. Like it doesn't look like they think that you really care about them as an individual. It's more like you're just like giving them a bunch of feedback and telling them basically that they suck at their job. <laughs> you know, it seems like that would be like a really good, like takeaway from that. I, I love this exercise. So if we kind of segue a little bit, like with this part in like kind of building, you know, that trust and like the feedback and that sort of thing 
Is there anything that like after that, that like course correction or like reinforcing that? Did you guys have to do that like a bunch of times? Did it become a regular part of something? Like how does uh, someone, if they decide to do this, make sure that it's not like a one-time thing that was really cool and then never gets talked about again? Well, that's an interesting question because if you do this well, then you're giving each other feedback kind of as you go because you care, right? Because you care. So the first couple of times when I'm like, you guys, I know yesterday I was on tilt. Why didn't anybody point it out? And they were like, oh, because you were really on tilt. Like we could tell you were not good. And we all were looking at each other like, who's going to say something? And they did it. And I'm like, but I need you to. And so create continuously creating this space. And also, if you're the leader, you've got to be all right when they do it. Because that's the part where, um, check, hey, you have a minute? Or are you open to feedback real quick? Like, there have been moments when people have said that to me. I'm like, not right now. I'm actually very aware of how my state of being is. And I'm not really (laughs) open to it right now. I'll come back to you a little later. That works too. So it's like creating. We actually never did that exercise again because we all got we all started getting better at doing it when it was happening. And that creates what I think we're looking for, which is more, more consistent feedback to also help each other get better. Like I can't be better unless somebody sometimes holds a mirror up for me and says like, did you notice that about yourself? Just a little thing, you know, and you need that. And if we're not doing that in our jobs and in our workplaces, man, what a mess. Because like this is where we actually do so much of our like growth as and development as like humans is figuring out how to do this. If we're only doing it in our little baby silos and families, like we're just missing the experience of other people and their lenses, like so valuable. I love that. And I think a really important part of that that you mentioned too, just for everyone is the, like you're getting the feedback and like you're not responding to their feedback in a negative way. Cause I see that a lot too, where it's like, okay, like we do this thing and then someone actually does give you feedback, which is really hard. I think for a person to give their boss, especially feedback on something or uh, someone that is like a coworker, same position. And like, you're even going as far as like, like, Hey, um, like the feedback is like, I really want this, but I just like, not right now. <laughs> like, can you ping me in an hour and we'll talk about it? You know, that kind of thing. I love that. That's going to be a really good little sound bite there. If we kind of focus on the onboarding side of the equation, can you give us a high level? What does a world-class like onboarding like look like, feel like? What's the 10,000 foot view of like how the companies you're seeing that just like do a killer job at this? Like what does that look like and feel like? So I had the opportunity to also build some onboarding experiences. And so I've had, you know, so optimizing, building from scratch and also experiencing what other people are doing. What I tend to believe now is you have to have a foundational layer of enablement. So, you know, whether that that should be, you know, company, that should be job and definitely like, you know, in a sales organization, we'd want to have those sales, you know, what's our methodology? What are we doing? How do we do it? I also think that just being in class type of setting the whole time through training and through onboarding, I think that's also a mistake. We tested quite a few different things over the years, doing some classwork and then having them go, you know, listen to calls or do different things or go and we used to call it, you know, riding trains or why connecting or doing things with different people and different parts of the organization. 
relaxation to their hearing, different things. And actually what we switched to was like on day three, we let them hop on the phones. They were panicked out of mind. But we had, I was like, we have a couple lead lists. We're going to just do it. And, you know, here's some things. And what happened was once they got into that a little bit, had an hour or two of hopping on the phones, doing some dials and needing help, they were a little bit more attentive because it was like, yep, I do need to learn this. Because so many times, and you've probably experienced this as well when you've talked with people or heard this, it's like they're sales reps are always like, get me on the phones. I just don't want to, I don't want to be in training. Get me on the phones. And so we were like really resistant to that. And what we realized is like, actually let them get on the phones for a little bit. They'll realize what they don't know. And then they actually are a little bit more attentive and responsive. So I, I will tell you two other points to this one, me as the sales leader, I set expectations with them. I was the first thing they did is I said to them, let me tell you the expectations for this. You are going to meet some world-class salespeople that are going to teach you. And if I hear that you are disrespectful in any way, shape or form, or you were on your phone or you were doing different things, like this is going to tell me everything I need to know about you in the first week. So this is my expectation. And I was just very, very clear. And also I wanted to be the first one to welcome them and tell them that this is the most important thing we're doing this week. The deals are going to come in. The customers are getting taken care of. But this week, you are so important to us. This is really critical. So you're going to see me. I'm just going to randomly come in here. And I'm going to be a part of things. We're going to do this because this is so important. So that kind of like set expectations right up front. The second part is we had top performers teach a lot of our classes. So our top performers and our people that were doing well and wanted to do, you know, to progress in their career and learn how to be better, we gave them the opportunity who would like to teach classes. And we had, you know, sat down, did a lesson plan, had them review it a few times, had them do it for us so that they knew how they were going to work the room and do different things and work, actually worked with our sales trainer. To, and the sales trainer was always in there kind of watching and facilitating and helping where necessary. But what was really great about that is it's like, who better to learn from about how to present, you know, do a good discovery call than the person that's been the top of the stacks, you know, nine out of 12 months. Everybody wants to know that person anyway. All the new people want to talk to that person anyway. And then we always did like midweek a breakfast, top performer breakfast. I would always ask like four or five of them to come in. And I no leaders were allowed to be in the room. And it was an ask me anything to these top performers. So we kept it like we continued to do things that made people be a little bit more a part of the org. Plus it got buy-in. The top performers would go back out and be like, man, she was awesome. I think she's going to be great. Is she on our team? Like, so what happened is that built like goodwill on the floor that we as leaders were doing a good job bringing people on that were good for the org and not toxic. And also they talked about the ones that were problematic. <laughs> so they were like, wow, that guy interrupted me seven times. And that was a concern that we took really seriously as well. So it was, it's really interesting. Oh, there's so many things that I want to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get your take on this first though, because you said the sales trainer, what is your take on companies that have an internal sales trainer or sales coach that does not sell? Well, I had one that did not sell. I will tell you most of, most of the time, I believe it's critical that that person has carried a quota and even better if they've carried it there so that they got buy-in from everybody. I think it's important 
to be able to do the job as well. When I even took a VP of sales job and, you know, I said the first month I will put a deal. We had two things that we were selling at that time, two products. And I'm like, I'll put a deal in on both sides of this and I'll work leads. I define old leads, junk leads, international leads that, you know, nobody else could sell because I didn't want to take them from the team. But I was hustling at the end of the month too, because I'm like, I didn't want to do deals here, you know, because I said I would. And it's important, you know, it's important. So I do think there's some of that in there. Mm, I have a lot of thoughts around the training, but that's why I like them more as kind of that facilitation. And also if they don't come from that, then like he was great at, he built curriculum. He had the binders, he had the stuff, which like salespeople are not great at, you know, those types of things. And so when we had that happen and then had the top performers popping in and doing some of those it kind of hit both sides of that for me and for them. So it seemed to work well. Yeah. I like that. And the reason I ask is because, you know, that's kind of a, I don't know. I just couldn't imagine helping people with prospecting if I wasn't like prospecting on a weekly basis myself. Like it's weird. Like coaching, like in a sales context is it's very similar, but it feels very different than like people like to use sports analogies a lot too, where it's like, you might have a, basketball coach. Let's use John Wooden. I'm a big fan of UCLA basketball coach. He was able to coach his team to championships and like all that other stuff. He, I don't think he ever won one himself. I think he might've played high school basketball. I don't know if he played any high level, but like he could dribble a ball and like shoot a basketball. You know what I mean? Like he could do some of the basics. So it just, I don't know where I, like I see the, like the internal sales coaches at some of the companies that I've worked with are usually like the hardest, like the most hard headed people to like get to like change their way of doing stuff because it's so outdated. So yeah, I was just curious on your take. That's just like, it's something I struggle with because then they look at me like competition. And I think that's a mistake. I think that sales trainers should be on the floor. Sales trainers should be listening to calls. Sales trainers should be with your team. And I think so many times we start to separate out like, oh, enablement is different. And, you know, all these different things. And I believe those things are very much a part of what we're doing. If I'm going to hire a trainer and basically say like, I don't have headcount. That means I, I have to, you know what I have to do? I can't, I can't hire the sales rep here, but I got to hire this trainer. That's how I look at it. I'm like, you better be getting me that much in revenue because they're doing so much better from going to your training and being enabled and prepared by you, not just on onboarding, but ongoing, that you're going to get me the equivalent to another rep. That's the pressure I believe is important to convey on the fact that you have got to be able to draw a line to revenue and how you're impacting it. And you are not, quote, just a trainer. You are driving revenue. And if because these three people spent time with you they went and pulled more out of their pipeline than they had before or did different things. Same thing with like sales engineers. If you can't draw a line to what you're doing and that you're impacting the org in a way that makes sense, you're just overhead. That's not okay. Not there, not in the, not, not a revenue role. No, there's no job security in that either. (laughs) Well, come on, come on. (laughs) No. And like you, I love enablement. I think this is so important. I mean, honestly, our business is essentially training and enablement and recruiting, you know, so two places in, in the org, you know, where we're all in the mix on this. So it's something I deeply believe in. 
but it's definitely got to be, you know, there's got to be a line there. What part of the onboarding, you mentioned the enablement piece. What's your take on like what part of it should educate the salespeople on like who they're selling to? Yeah. I mean, if you're not, what do you mean? Where should that be? Like that's an onboarding. You got to know your ICP. You got to be able to go. Like I believe. Yeah. I ask because it's such a small part of most onboarding. They rarely like they might say like, oh, yeah, we sell to uh, SaaS companies with 200 to 500 employees. And you, you're going to want to talk to the VPs of sales. And that's like where it stops. There isn't like, oh, well, what kind of problems does this organization have that's related to this? What's the business value for them? Like, what are the other departments that like might need to get involved in why? And like kind of like that, more of that kind of style of uh, training. So. Um, when I worked at Booker, BPSL is at Booker, we didn't really have a great onboarding at all for the company. So I came out like, this isn't going to work. We have to have some things happen. So we got to design something from scratch, which was really very fun. The first full day was all about our why, the company mission, all those different things. And I did not want it to be super long. But the second day, day two, was all about the customer. So we spent the entire morning talking about our target and this is who they are. And we actually had a sales rep train this as well. So it was very similar to how I'd done it at the previous company. And then what we did is this was really different. We actually, because our target was salons and spas specifically, like in health and wellness, we actually gave each of them at, at lunchtime an envelope of $60. And we said, you're going to go buy a service from one of our prospects and they could be a client, they could be a prospect. And so we gave them basically time in the morning. Like when we, we said book a schedule, something try to schedule. And it was funny because some of them actually were scheduling with our booker clients. They were actually using the scheduling and the booking flow that they would be selling. They didn't know it at the time that that was, you know, what it was. And then others were just going um, and doing different things. So we basically gave them that 60 bucks. And then we said tomorrow morning, we have invited the entire company to a presentation that you're going to do and you're going to do it on what you learned. I had a little sheet that I sent with them. I said, you've probably gone to a spa or salon or done something, gotten a massage, done cryotherapy. You've probably done something before, but you probably never looked at it with this lens. So pay attention. What's the waiting room like? What's this experience like? What is the receptionist trying to do 25 things doing? Look at it differently. And we had them... I said, I don't care how you present it. You, you only have to go three minutes. And at the beginning of this, it was only like really the hiring class. And we did this with every single hire, not just sales. Every single hire did this. By the end of the time that I was there, we had almost every executive, our product team was in there just writing stuff down that they were hearing from what the experience was. So it became something that ended up being really interesting because fresh eyes, new perspective, they don't know anything really about our software at this point. And they're just saying like, here was my experience. And then we would say like, would you go back? What would you think needed to change? How would they do? You know, we'd ask a few questions and it really also helped them get in front of the company and do this as well. And it was awesome. We loved it. I think that's super cool that they got to actually experience and observe the like what you mentioned there, like, oh, the person like running around like a chicken with their head caught off, like trying to take this stuff. Customers sitting in the waiting room for 30 minutes and getting frustrated because then that's all the stuff that like when you call the person, you can talk about those like kind of things when you're selling to these businesses. Um, and again, the reason why I ask is 
it might seem really obvious to someone like you, but like most companies, at least the ones I interact with and a lot of other ones that people like me interact with that are in my line of work is it's very, it's so focused on the company and like the product and like how the product works, which I think is important to know. There's so little on like, how can I get this rep to like feel what it's like to be a customer so that they can like talk to those things? Because then it has like an exponential effect on their emails, their calls, how they demo, you know, like everything. It has like an exponential effect on. Well, they, because they had the experience themselves and some of them had terrible experiences as a customer. They had a terrible client experience. And so what we were trying to say is like, if you're the customer coming into our customer. Now you know why it's so important that they can serve them well because how sideways it goes when it doesn't feel good, you know, because you're telling now 30 people that you don't really like that experience you just had or 50 people or as it grew, hundreds of people were listening to this. And so it was a very interesting experience and they paid much better attention in the product because then they were like, ah, that solves that problem I solved. That solves that problem I solved. That makes sense why we do that, you know, and then they also actually brought up different things from a product perspective where it was like, yeah, but that wouldn't work because that's actually not what I saw them doing. And then it was like, that's true. <laughs> that's, that is true. You know, because sometimes we see it just our way for so long that we're not, I mean, so I, I would encourage if there's any way to emulate again, what the experience is, especially from the customer perspective, do it. Like just think outside the box. I was like, you know, when we were talking about it, I'm like, how can we make them have a different kind of experience than they've ever had before in a company? And 60 bucks a person, that's not a giant thing. You're probably going to spend that on two pieces of swag, which we gave them some swag too. But still, you know, we actually said, you can tell them that you're with Booker. You don't have to tell them you're with Booker. You can kind of secret shop this and experience it. Like be a good customer. And we also were like, and tip them. And do these things, you know, so we were like, you know, making sure they knew the proper etiquette and the things to do as a customer to make sure that that worked as well. But it was a really super insightful and it became one of the highlights of the month when we would hire people. I love too the other part of that. I love how the entire company is like bought into this process and like they have to present and like people are like products like taken down. It's like it just sounds like you had a really good culture of like everyone like really working together around this which I think is so important, especially on the product side. Like with some companies, if there's kind of like a lot of siloed, you know, kind of stuff going on, I'll just have a meeting with like one of the people from product come in or customer success, a person from marketing that's in charge of messaging. And then some people on the sales team, it's like you get all of them in a room and it's like, oh, wow. Like they start sharing all kinds of stuff that's helpful. Christine, I could talk to you like for an hour just about <laughs> onboarding. <laughs> so maybe we'll have to get you back again. Um, where can people go to connect with you? Like, can you let us little, know a little bit more about what you're up to, where people can follow you? And they definitely need to connect with you on LinkedIn. You're putting out a lot of great content there, which we'll link to in the show notes. But where uh, where should people go to find out more about you? Sure. So, yeah, we're we're busy at aspireship.com. You can come find us. We essentially, like we, I've said a couple of different times, a couple of different ways, we're helping people that want to transition to fast selling that don't have experience, all different walks of life coming through. We have a free course. So as long as you complete it within 30 days, it's completely free. And if you can pass the assessment, which is role plays and also kind of behavioral multiple choice, then we will, um, you graduate and we actually introduce you to companies that are more 
focused on kind of a person's capability and competency and character rather than having the perfect resume. So we've already pre, I've sold these people. Alexis has sold these people over here. So they're just waiting for great talent to come through. And then, you know, that's what we're up to at Aspireship. So for people that are looking to get into selling, maybe need a little bit more upskilling because they're not having success or want to be a little bit cleaner about that or maybe promote different things, that's for you. And then also, um, you know, those that are open to hiring some incredible talented people that are doing great work that may not have that, you know, given somebody a chance who's going to be a loyal, amazing employee. So yeah, in LinkedIn, I'm come find me on LinkedIn connect with me. That's always great. I love learning from other people too. So that's, that's an awesome place to find me. That was a fun one. My favorite thing that she shared was how they give their reps vouchers essentially to go spend money, like people that they would do business with so they could experience and see what that is like sitting in someone's spa or retail store or gym or whatever it might be. I thought that was super cool. And my takeaway from this is how do you emulate something like that. So if your reps can't go in person to experience what it's like to work with your customers, how could you emulate that for them? How could you create some sort of simulation? Or maybe it's you interview your customers in podcast form like this or on Zoom calls and you hit record and they get to listen to that. Maybe it's you know screen shares of your customers using the product, whatever it might be, anything that you can do to really get your reps in the shoes of your customers. It's going to be really powerful for prospecting. So thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, I got one quick favor. Could you leave a quick review on iTunes? So if you like this, I would appreciate a short, honest review on iTunes. It helps us grow the audience and continue getting people like you to listen to it and folks like Christine to come on as guests. So on podcasts app on iTunes, you can just search for Blissful Prospecting. It should pop right up. Scroll to the bottom, leave a short, honest review. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you next episode.